But today we're going to look at uh, Luke chapter 20, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 26. Um, we're going to read them all for context, but the actual verses we're going to concentrate on are going to be verses 20 through 26. Um, this is a passage when I was in seminary, and I would get a call to go visit a church. I used to pull this one out. It's one of my favorites, and uh, I've taught this passage multiple times in the past, a couple times here as well, but it's been a while, and uh, I like to pull it out when I think it's been long enough that we could do it again because people probably don't remember it, but it's a favorite passage of mine to teach on, and in this passage, Jesus has a few different interactions with some different groups of people, the chiefs, priests, the scribes, Pharisees, uh, some spies posing as righteous men, and also a group called the Herodians, so he deals with a lot of different people in these interactions. And what's going on is there's some people, especially the religious people, who are challenging Jesus' authority, the authority uh, by which he does what he does, and his authority to teach what he does. They're challenging who he is because he is challenging them and what they, what they believe, what they think they know. And he's unraveling a lot of what they think. And awesome, Jesus still does that today. He challenges what we think we know about deity or higher power or morality or humility or whatever anybody happens to believe. In some way, Jesus is going to challenge our belief. And we're going to read from Luke chapter 20, verses uh, 1 through 26 for context. But we're going to concentrate on verses 20 and 26. So Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 1. It says, one day, as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up to him and said to him, tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Who is he who gave you this authority? He answered them, I will also ask you one thing. Answer me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? And they debated within themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it was from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and leased it to vine dressers and went to a distant country for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers so that they might give him some fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant, but they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. Once again, he sent a third, and they wounded him also and drove him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they debated among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they drove him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then? will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill the vine dressers and will give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, may it not be so. He looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but he on whom it falls will be crushed to powder. The chief priests and the scribes tried to lay their hands on him that same hour, but they feared the people for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. They watched him and sent out spies who pretended to be righteous men, that they might seize him in his words to hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly, and you do not show partiality. You truly teach the way of God. 
is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He perceived their craftiness and said to them, Why do you test me? Show me a denarius, whose image and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They could not catch him in his words before the people, and they marveled at his answer, and they were silent. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you and praise you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we can read it out loud, that we can hear it, that we can learn from it. And I pray that today you would open it to us or open us to it. And we learn from it and we grow from it. And we're thankful for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Um, there are a couple, couple of reasons that I really like this passage. Um, but it's, it's special to me because it's one of the very first passages that I dug into and I, I, it resonated with me in a way that brought to light for me the fact that the scripture is very deep and it's all very interconnected. And even though I may have heard something, uh, a passage before and heard it taught on and maybe even read it multiple times, that there's, there's often something more to learn from it. And it also reinforces how important life application of Scripture is. For instance, the people who challenge Jesus in these passages, at least some of them, uh, are very religious, and they know the Scripture quite well, but they just know it, and Jesus actually lives it. And today we're looking specifically to verses 20 and 26 of Luke chapter 20. And we've talked about it before, but it's been a while, so you might remember some of it. But this passage, it involves money. Um, Jesus uses some money as an object lesson. So when people read it, that's kind of where their mind tends to go. You know, we're supposed to pay taxes and we're supposed to uh, give our finances to God. You know, render to Caesar what's his, render to God what's his. And those things are true, and the Bible talks about those things. But then in this passage, Jesus uses money as more of a passive object lesson to teach what he's really wanting people to know. And you'll see that as we get into this passage and we read three different interactions here that Jesus had with different groups of people about his authority, whether he has the authority to do the things he does, has the authority to teach the things that he does. And leading up to this point, Jesus had been in the temple. This is like the week before Jesus was crucified. This is like the week before Easter. And he's only a short time away from being arrested and tried and ultimately executed. And he goes into the temple, and he drives out the money changers. Maybe you've heard this part of the story before. He goes into the temple. He sees what's going on. He braids uh, a whip out of some rope, and he drives the money changers out of the temple. Very out of character for Jesus, very different to his personality. And, but this is the setting in which the uh, Jewish leaders had come to him after he had done this. And there's also, it's, it's a big holiday in Jerusalem. It's the Passover. People had traveled from all over the world, Jewish people, to come to Jerusalem. Probably Gentile traders there, a lot of people. They'd come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. It's a huge holiday. It's a big deal. Lots of people there. And people would go to the temple, and they would make a sacrifice. It would be a rare opportunity for them. If they traveled a long way, they wouldn't get to see the temple Often, and they'd come and they'd make a sacrifice. It'd be a big deal for the whole family. It'd be sort of like you or I going to our maybe ancestral home or wherever we grew up and visiting family and going to church with the family as a tradition kind of thing. Very similar to that. 
And of course, they made animal sacrifices at the temple. Some of them would have brought their own animals. Some of them would have purchased one when they got there. You know, just like when we travel, sometimes there's things you bring with you. Sometimes it's more convenient to buy things when you get there. And there were money changers in the temple and people who would sell animals for sacrifice. And it was a necessary convenience. It was, you know, they needed to be there for people. And when you travel, you have to have currency exchange. And the temple tax had to be paid to support the temple and the operations and the priests that work there. And, you know, today we give free will offerings to do that. But the Jewish people paid a tax, and that tax had to be paid in Jewish currency, Jewish shekels. And the business of the money changers was currency exchange. And because people came from different places with different currency and it needed to go on. Well, what happened was Jesus went into the temple and saw that the money changers were operating kind of like the currency exchange at the airport, if you've ever uh, exchanged money there. Um, they were cheating people on the exchange rate. And the same was happening with the animals for sacrifice. They were overcharging, and it's likely that the scribes and the Pharisees and chief priests were kind of taking a cut of that because they were allowing to be in the courtyard there at the temple. And, you know, I've, I've read different things, heard stories about, they, you know, where someone would bring an, an animal, and it was supposed to be an animal without blemish, and the people selling the animals would say, well, you can't use this one because this is wrong with it. So they'd sell them one of theirs at a higher price, and then they'd probably just throw that one in the pen and sell it to the next person who came along. But Jesus sees this going on, and it makes him angry. So he braids uh, a whip out of cords or out of rope, and he ends up driving them all out of the temple. And he drives out the animals, flips over the tables, and the most upsetting thing for them was that he dumps their money all over the place. And it wasn't the fact that they were buying and selling. It wasn't commerce that was the problem. It was Jesus was angry because they were cheating people. He says, you turned my father's house into a den of thieves. They were stealing from people. Proverbs 11 and 20 both talk about how God hates dishonest measures, dishonest scales. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with God's people conducting honest commerce. There's no problem with that. You know, like we hire our church hall downstairs. It's kind of a community service at a very reasonable cost. And it's okay to do that. But cheating people is obviously wrong. And that makes God angry. And that's what happened before the interactions we read about in our passage today. And it, and it fuels this push to get Jesus arrested, to have him arrested, and ultimately crucified. They're very angry, very reactionary culture. And you can tell that by how afraid everybody was of the masses because mob justice was not unusual. If somebody did something bad enough, the mob would drag him outside of the city and stone him to death. And that wasn't an unusual thing. So when the scribes, the Pharisees, come to Jesus and they question what he's teaching and they question his authority, they're saying to him, who do you think you are and what gives you the right to do what you've done and what you do and say the things and teach the things that you do? What makes you think that you have the authority to do that? Because you can imagine someone going into the temple, flipping tables, all that kind of, who do you think you are? And in the second part, Jesus uses a parable about a vineyard and the workers in the vineyard to talk about his, how his authority is being rejected and the workers in the vineyard, they kill the vineyard owner's son. And in that, Jesus is pointing a finger at them. He's making accusations. And they are genuinely angry. So angry that they want him dead. But they're afraid to do anything because of the crowd. You know, it was only very recently, just 
just right before this, Jesus had rode into Jerusalem and everyone is shouting, Hosanna, you know, glory to God. And so they are afraid of what people might do if they arrest Jesus. So they come up with a plan as to how they might be able to take Jesus into custody. And it's, it's actually a brilliant plan. And at the same time, be able to do that without bringing the force of the unruly masses upon themselves. And this plan they come up with is a really good one. They're going to use this crowd. They're going to use the crowd against Jesus. And up to this point, they had tried openly challenging him. They tried debating with him. And he had wrecked their you know, uh, money-making prospects, as well as he had mentally and socially tied their hands. And in this third interaction, they take a different approach. They come at it from a different angle. The scribes and the chief priests are watching Jesus, and they send out spies posing as righteous men, as, as good guys, to ask a question that seems simple, it seems innocent. And they ask Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar? So the most religious people of the day are being very deceptive. They're being very dishonest. And let's not forget that people then are, are just the same as people now. We're not any different. We're not any better. And we, meaning you and I, and we all have the capacity to do these things. We may not be doing it, but we have that capacity. We have the same capacity as the scribes and the Pharisees and do in this passage. We don't ever want to forget that. We need to remember that, and we don't want to forget it. And then in this third interaction, where they come to Jesus and ask him this question, there's several different groups involved, depending, you know, you can see the different groups as you read from the different Gospels. There are the, the spies, the scribes, uh, the chief priests, um, the Gospel of Mark also mentions the Pharisees and a group called the Herodians. And Jesus has just offended the, the religious leaders with the parable of the vineyard owner. And they want to do something about it. They're angry about it. But they were afraid of what the people would do if they did anything to Jesus, if they were to take him into custody. When we get down to verse 20, Jesus is approached by the spies disguised as, as righteous men, and they ask him, is it lawful for us to pay tax to Caesar? And like I say, this really isn't about money. How Jesus answers this next question is going to determine how things go forward from here. And taxes being paid to Rome is a highly controversial topic for the Jewish people. The Pharisees hate the Roman government. Uh, we've talked about this multiple times. They see the Romans as oppressors. They want them gone. They don't think they should have to pay tax to them. They don't want anything to do with them. The Pharisees, they were a religious sect. They were, they were businessmen. <laughs> so, you know, they don't, they don't want to pay taxes. They don't have to any more than they have to. And they had a big influence among the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, and the general public. Very influential group of people. In our terms, they'd probably be considered uh, similar, and I'm not picking on anybody, I don't mean that at all, but to be similar to like far-right, maybe religious conservatives who are business people. And it's a loose parallel, not exactly. And they were dedicated to the Old Testament law. And they were very nationalist in their thinking, very Jewish in their thinking. They believed Jews were God's chosen people, and the Romans were unclean Gentiles, and they shouldn't be subject to them. And they believed that God was going to send a Savior to fix that. And they would say that it was against Old Testament law for them to be sending money off to Rome, to be paying tax to Caesar, to what they considered an oppressive foreign government. But they're also okay with you know, cheating people, so that take that for what it is. And if Jesus answers the tax question by saying, 
the Jewish people should pay taxes to Caesar, the, what the Pharisees would do is they would jump on that and they would turn the people against Jesus because they're very influential. They've got a lot of pull with people. And then they wouldn't have to worry about the crowd turning against them if they have him arrested. And then there's the Herodians, on the other hand, another group. And they support the Roman government. Uh, the Herodians, they were a, politish, a, a Jewish political group that viewed things differently than the Pharisees. They actually supported the Roman government. They supported Caesar. They supported his deputy, Herod. Therefore, the name Herodians. And they believed that Jews should accept Roman rule and get on with life and pay taxes to Caesar and find their place in the world as it is. They were probably, you'd consider, more progressive, more left-leaning. And if Jesus answers no, the Jewish people shouldn't pay tax to Caesar, the Herodians could then bring the Roman government against Jesus. So the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, they don't really care how it happens. They just want to take care of Jesus. Just as long as it gets done, it doesn't matter who does it. And they haven't had any success openly confronting Jesus, so they come up with a different plan. They're going to turn the crowd against him or the Roman government against him. And they come up with this deception, and they are plan to ask him a question that they believe has no right answer. No matter whether he answers, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, no, you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, someone is going to accuse him from wrong, from, of wrongdoing. So they asked Jesus a simple yes or no question. Is it lawful for the Jewish people to pay tax to Caesar? And they asked their question in verse 21 and 22. They come to Jesus with feigned piety. Remember, they're being deceptive. They're spies. And they say, Jesus, you know, we, ju we just don't know what to do. We really want to do the right thing. Um, we've got something we're very concerned about, and we need your help. We need your help with this. We know that you're the right guy to ask because you're unbiased. You teach God's truth without prejudice or bias, and you're not influenced by other people. So you can give us a truly godly, correct, and unbiased answer. We just want to do the right thing. So they asked Jesus, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And the Bible tells us in verse 23 that Jesus perceived their wickedness. He, he understood what they were up to. And he says, why do you test me? In the book of Mark, he actually calls them hypocrites. And Jesus says, bring me a denarius. In Matthew twenty-two nineteen, 19, he says, bring me the tax money, meaning the money that was to be rendered to Caesar as tax. And this little bit of the passage is very important. This is where we really learn what's happening. Jesus specifically asked for a denarius. And a denarius is a Roman coin. It's the money used to pay tax to Caesar. And religious dues, like the temple tax, were paid in Jewish currency, shekels. And Jesus specifically asked for the Roman money, the money that would be used to pay tax to Caesar. So someone pulls out a denarius, and Jesus takes the coin, and he looks at it, and no doubt he holds it up to the crowd, and he says, whose picture and name is on this coin? And just like any modern money, it's got a name, and it's got a someone's picture on it, and it's got some inscription on it. And Denarius has Caesar's picture on it, and it's got his name on it. So when Jesus asked them whose name and picture is on the coin, they answer, well, it's Caesar's. It's obviously Caesar's. Everybody would know that. I, I, easy question, easy answer. It was a tribute to him. Not only was it paid as tax, it was also a tribute to him in that it carried his name and it carried his image. And people carried it around to do business, but he could demand it as tax. 
Caesar could tax it. He could have it returned to him to build his empire, you know, for public benefit, for whatever reason uh, he decided he wanted to use it for. So after making the point that this is Caesar's coin, it has his picture on it, it's got his name on it, it's his, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. But then he adds to that and to God the things that are God's. And just like the coin that bore Caesar's image, it should be rendered unto Caesar. The things that bear God's image should be rendered to God. And Jesus is telling us that there is a basic expectation that the things that belong to God should be restored to him, just like the denarius be restored to Caesar. And we find what that is that should be rendered to God clear back in the very first chapter of the Bible, very back in the book of Genesis, verses 26, chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image, the image in the image of God. He created them, male and female. He created them. So God has created many things, but only one thing bears his image. And the people Jesus is speaking to, the scribes, the Pharisees, you and I, we bear his image. God created us in his image. So to answer the question, what does Jesus mean by rendering to God what is his? He means yourself. He means you and me. It's not a question of what should be rendered to God or restored to God, but who. Who should be restored to God? And think about Jesus saying that to the scribes and the Pharisees. You know, not only are you cheating people out of money, you're also cheating God out of what belongs to him. You're keeping that for yourself as well. And don't forget, that can be any one of us. We're all capable of that. And if you already know Jesus is your Savior and you're his follower, Jesus is reminding you and me that we need to give to God, restore to God what is obviously his, return to him what is his. Returning to God what belongs to him is something we all need to think about sometimes because we wander off, we, we do different things. You know, so like this passage, our mind often goes to finances. And some, sometimes we can be generous with finances. We can, we can give, we can give things away, we can you know, be very generous, we can give to our church, all those things. The Pharisees were very meticulous about giving. They made sure they gave everything they could. I mean, they, they would, you can read in the Gospels about how they would go through their garden and, and the spices and things, and they would make sure they set aside 10% to give to the temple. Very meticulous about it, very generous about it. And it's easy to do that. It's easy to do that with our families, uh, you know, thinking, well, I'm, I'm giving this to my family, and that's what they need. You know, we all wander off at some point and do our own thing. We all follow our own wisdom. And the whole Bible is about reconciling to God what is already his and how Jesus makes that possible. God created the heaven and the earth and everything in it, but he only created people in his image. And at one point, Adam and Eve decided they knew better than God did. And then they acted on what they thought they knew. You can go back and read Genesis chapter 3 this afternoon and see how they reasoned that out. How they reasoned out, well, God said this, but we're going to do this instead. They tried, it's almost like they try to compensate for their sin. They reason about, thinking about, say, well, you know, I'm doing this, so this makes this okay. 
And we do the same thing. We do the same thing. We think, well, I'm doing okay over here. So that compensates for the other things I'm not doing well over here. When what God really wants is you. He really wants you. You know, and, and generosity in other areas kind of lead us into that. But that's what he really wants, is you. And the rest of the Bible is about God restoring people back to himself. So we can return to God what is already his. People sin, Jesus paid the price for that sin on the cross soon after this passage takes place. And if we repent, we put our trust and our faith in him as our Savior, we can be restored to him. Now the last few words our passage says in talking about those who are trying to trap Jesus in his words, it says they could not catch him in his words before the people. And they marveled at his answer, and they were silent. Even his enemies were impressed by what Jesus said. They marveled at what he said. His enemies were impressed by him. They maybe even admired what he said. They'd seen Jesus heal sick people. They'd seen his wisdom. They'd heard him teach. They'd seen him cause lame people to walk. They were amazed by what he said, and yet they still rejected it. They still wouldn't render to God what is his. And sometimes we, we might think we know the Bible, we might think we know God, we might think we know all these things, but we struggle to actually return to God what is his and render ourselves to him. We can do that with a lot of things, a lot of different things, and use it as an excuse to say, well, I'm doing pretty good over here, and use that to compensate for what God really wants, which is you. And we do that, well, frankly, because we're selfish. We just are. And in our passage, the most respected, wealthy, influential, religious people who claim to know the Scripture and the ways of God are the ones who are cheating people and trying to murder Jesus. And, I mean, I'm not implying anything against anyone, but it's just a reality that we need to consider. They take Scripture and they use it to serve their own purposes and themselves. And Jesus is saying, you need to render to God what is his. They're building their own kingdom. And Jesus says, render to God what is his. And let's ask ourselves, because there's, if, we're, if we really examine ourselves, think about it, meditate on it, there's some area of life where we're not doing that. There's some area of life where we are struggling. What's keeping me from serving God's kingdom instead of my own? What's keeping me from rendering to God what belongs to him? My whole being, everything I have. What's keeping me from abandoning my will for the will of Jesus? What's keeping me from returning to God what truthfully already belongs to him anyway? I'm going to ask you to stand for a moment as we finish up this morning and we concentrate think on these things I'd encourage you to go back and read that in Genesis chapter 3 that interaction where Adam and Eve they kind of reason out their sin and they try to compensate for it and then maybe think about areas where do I do that in my life where am I compensating for things that I'm telling myself well I'm doing this so that's pretty good and kind of balances out this thing over here that I'm not doing we all need to think about